Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to the Sandbox Story, which is an interview with Dr. Charles Brownlow. Hello, Chuck. It's a great honor to have you with me today. Hey, Dr. Jens. <laughs> we've uh, we've been through the ringer together a long time, you know. Yes, we have. Uh, really glad to to have the opportunity to help you tell your story. So, you know, you're a family man through and through. Uh, Sherry is a school teacher. You raised these two fine children. Uh, Andy is a leading grounds crew guy at the premier golf course in central Wisconsin. And your daughter is a wonderful, productive participant in her community. And, you know, you've got two grandsons. I mean, I'm just scratching the surface of these many attributes of your family. Wonderful wife. Yeah. I mean, what about your family brings you the most joy? Oh, wow. Um, joy and challenges come right along to get uh, one right after the other. Um, I, I think having grandkids is very special and they're, they're very difficult to get along with. They're nowhere near as intelligent as I am. They don't know anywhere near, they can't draw as well. Um, they barely can type at age six, six and eight. Um, but I think that's been probably the supreme joy of my life. Um, family life begins with Sherry though. And, uh, we just celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary after dating seven years prior to that. And, uh, she continues to be my greatest support and, uh, and encouragement, uh, even after all these years, I wish I could do as well for her. Well, I think you have, uh, you guys have been on a, a heck of a journey. Uh, I'm going to shift away from your family for a second. You became a pilot. Um, when did you become a pilot? Why did you become a pilot? Um, Flying was something that I always wanted to do, um, probably starting by in mid-teens. And uh, actually what happened was uh, I signed up for the TPA class for the Wisconsin Optometric Association in the fall of, of 1988. We were preparing because our law was going to pass or it already had passed and would have gone, I guess it was, yeah, 88. And uh, I was sure it was going to pass in 88, although it hadn't. And uh, so I signed up for a TPA class to learn how what equipment we would need and all that kind of stuff. And uh, even though I was who I was, uh, I got my registration in too late. And uh, our, our uh, executive assistant at the association called me and apologized. And she said, uh, Dr. Brownlow, uh, you were two days too late. Uh, the, the registration is full. She said, but don't worry about it. I can figure out how to get you in. And I said, no, 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 Joanne. I said, I don't deserve any special treatment. So send my check back. So I got the check back, which was 2000 bucks, if I remember right. And then I used that as a down payment on, on learning to fly. <laughs> so first lesson was October 88, and I got my license exactly a year later to the day, October 89. I've been flying ever since. And, and you've flown um, biplanes? Well, I built a biplane. Right, right. right. Tell, tell me about right. that. Um, well, I fell in love. I actually wanted to build a, a single wing tail dragger airplane 
So I would go to Oshkosh every year and and kind of drool on that particular model. And uh, in uh, 2000, it would have been 1999, I went to Oshkosh. And uh, I was looking for examples of that particular airplane. And off in the distance, like five, six rows away, I saw this strange-looking bluish-green wing. And uh, so I walked over there, and it was the Hatch biplane. And I just fell in love. So that's what I decided to do. So I started ordering parts and building parts, and 10 years later, I actually flew it for the first time. I mean, and, uh, you literally built that plane piece by piece in your garage. I did, right. And it, it's uh, a little bit easier than that, but not a whole lot, because um, I was able to buy some of the components. Like, I don't do any welding. So the welded uh, fuselage, they call it a weldment, I, I was able to buy that. <clears throat> but uh, And I didn't paint it myself, because... After putting 10 years into that project, I didn't want my first painting project to be my only airplane that I would ever build. So I had that done professionally. Yeah. So, so, that so was, you're, go ahead. No, so I was just going to say, so that I finished in early July of 2010, 2009. I wrecked it uh, in July of 2009, just before Oshkosh, broke both right wings. And then spent the next year building it, and finally got it to Oshkosh in 2010. So, what a, what what, uh, what an accomplishment, though. Yeah, pretty amazing. You were a big part of the AOA's effort to yeah. help optometrists understand pilots' vision, and the Eyes Right for Flight program was held right. at the Oshkosh fly-in. Tell exactly. us what practicing ODs should understand not only about what that project was like to be a part of, but also oh. what they should understand about pilot's vision. Oh, wow. <clears throat> well, first of all, um, the, the, uh, that particular project was started by other people even more wonderful than I am. <laughs> um, there were four of us who were involved, uh, originally Mike Middleman and uh, the, the late um, Pat Cummings, you know, absolutely good friend. Um, and, and I think maybe the president of the AOA was involved at that time, although I'm not really sure how much he was. And then Jeff Weaver, a staff person from AOA. And we just got to get, we'd run into each other at AOA, at EAA, at the uh, Experimental Aircraft Association meeting. Walking around, we'd run into each other and start talking about, you know, the pilots should know more about the importance of vision and flying. So how could we do this? Well, pretty soon we had a sponsor. Vistacon sponsored us to the multi-ten-thousands of dollars. And we had a 20-foot booth at Oshkosh, and I think it was 14 years in a row. Uh, typically, we would have oh, maybe 30 to 40 volunteers that would come and work. They would each volunteer to work at the booth half a day. And then in, in, uh, as pay for that, they would get a free day ticket. Uh, to spend on the grounds at uh, Experimental Aircraft Association. Um, it was great fun because people would come in and ask us questions about, you know, why are you even here? And then the answer oftentimes would be, well, vision is moderately important to pilots, don't you think? And then it would be one of these things, you know, they'd be hitting themselves in the forehead or in their headset if they happen to, <laughs> happen to have a headset on. And uh, so it became pretty obvious to people, but the the numbers of people that came to the booth was absolutely awesome, and because there are a lot of people that are pilots, and uh, many times people would ask about 
no lines bifocals about the restrictions with respect to contact lens wearing because that was often misunderstood. Um, we also had um, a representative directly from FAA who was the FAA optometrist in our booth most of the time and he was able to answer questions you know van just an absolutely right? wonderful exactly yeah good old van who's since retired <clears throat> and i hope he tunes into this sometime because i'd like to greet him wonderful person um so when, then we we printed out uh handouts on uh, vision and pilot related issues uh we had all kinds of information to share at the booth it was a wonderful experience yeah. Big pain in the neck to have to be there at seven o'clock every morning for eight days in a row, but again, you make the sacrifice. Yeah. Uh, and you had the—I had the fortune of being able to introduce you to my father-in-law that way, who is also a pilot. Exactly, a pilot. Yes. Times. Yeah. Yeah. He—he he doesn't fly airplanes anywhere near as nice, nice as mine, but. Right. <laughs> so uh, I graduated from ICO in '91. Um, we became friends before that. You came down as a Wisconsin right. Optometric Association leader to recruit Wisconsin mm -hmm. optometrists to membership. And obviously, your mentorship to me has been very powerful. You know, we created mm -hmm. notes and compared the ways that our educations were different 20 years apart a 71 grad and a 91 grad. And we even wrote an article about it. And you know, if you contrast your education in 71 to a 2021 grad, and I don't want to date you here, oh. um, it, it's, you know, 20 Just years. Theoretically that, <laughs> you know, theoretically that I graduated in 71. Theoretically. So 20 years <laughs> yeah. was, was a big deal. We talked about the cost of education and other things, but 50 years, it's, it's a whole nother um, story. Uh, what was it like in, in 71? How can a 2021 grad understand what those of you that graduated yeah. in 71 went through? Right. Um, first of all, we were the first four-year class. Um, and we heard that for four years straight because the curriculum was constantly changing. Uh, communication skills for the professional man was one of our classes, even though we had women in our class. Uh, the, the professors would change. Uh, the students would complain so much about the syllabus or about the or about the presentation and then they'd get it somebody else in there to do it. Um, we didn't really know we were the first of the four-year classes until maybe six months to a year before we uh, traveled to Chicago. Um, travel in Chicago was probably worse in 67 through 71 than it is now. Not as safe. Um, getting on the L train was a real adventure, and I'm sure that still is. Um, the introduction to Chicago itself, uh, precinct captain from the 9th precinct came in as a part of our indoctrination to the to the environment, and told us what we could do and what we couldn't do. If we went downtown on the L train and came back, remember to get off at 29th Street, and if you don't get off at the 29th Street station, go all the way to the end. And then the L turns around and will bring you back and then definitely get off. And stuff like that that from a town of 600, uh, I never would have thought of in a million years. Um, so the curriculum was um, hastily put together, I believe. Um, and, and because we were the, f the first four-year class, uh, we were constantly having to help uh, in the development of the, cl of the class work. And, and how things could be improved for the second four-year class that would, that would have entered in 68. Um, so the education was different. The, the facilities were nowhere near what they are today. Um, 
luckily I've been able to go down there almost on an annual basis to speak to the students uh, up until just a few years ago. But every time I would go, I would be impressed with the facility. The library was just totally different. I mean, our library would have just about fit in a telephone booth, if anybody knows what a telephone booth is <laughs> or was. Um, so that was part of it. The professors were tremendous. The professors um, put up with the changes as well as you could have ever expected anyone to do. Um, so, But it was, it was very different. Um, uh, the facilities, I think, were probably the biggest difference in the curriculum. Um, the things that students learn now, as I learn when I have eye examinations, I'm so impressed with today's graduates. And I, I just had an eye examination within the last couple months. And I remember, and it was done by an intern. And I, was remember, I remember thinking all the way through the examination um, about, could I do this? Uh, would I even be capable of learning this stuff? Um, you know, I'm not very good at learning this stuff. Um, so, you know, would I be able to actually uh, learn to use this equipment? And the other thing is the um, information that can be gathered to be considered by today's optometrists is just immensely bigger than it was when I graduated. Fortunately for us, it didn't happen overnight. The changes in education happened because the profession changed. The profession changed because education changed, but usually it was a profession changing first and then education scrambling to catch up. So we had to learn stuff as we went in practice, which I think is a lesson for every optometrist today and every optometric student who may view this. Understand that your education is not going to end in 1971 or 2021. Uh, your education is going to go on throughout your career. If it doesn't, you're going to fall behind, and your profession, I guarantee you, will move on without you, because that's what it's always done. Uh, the profession moved forward, education caught up, and it's usually not very long lag, because education people are smart enough to know that they better catch up, or they're going to fall behind on and lose registrations. I, uh, new students. I think that the rate at which you and your fellow grads that ten-year period, say from the 1970-1980 had to evolve faster after graduation than today's yeah. graduates will 10 or 20 years out of school because with diagnostics and, and therapeutics it was such a big change at a time but it was not quick to your point it took time yeah. and there, right. there was a legislative effort behind that i mean every state in the country it was a fight for diagnostic and therapeutic privileges and i know that Big time. you know we old timers like to remind the young doctors of those changes but is, is can you give us some stories about what it was like to be part of those battles well i the the beauty of it i've been thinking about this since you invited me um the beauty of this is that we passed our our diagnostic pharmaceutical bill in the late 1970s well, that effort actually was started probably in the early 50s, because many of the people who supported that uh, first diagnostic uh, legislation bill uh, had no intention of ever using diagnostic pharmaceuticals. You know, they were doctors who, some of them did take the classes and actually begin to use diagnostic pharmaceuticals in their practice and become certified to do that. But there were many people who were instrumental in the legislative battle to get that passed who never did use diagnostic pharmaceuticals. And the same is true 
maybe not the same percentage-wise, but when we passed therapeutic legislation. Many of the doctors who supported it by going to, uh, down the legislature, by, by, uh, by making their contributions to the personal contribution fund, um, by writing their letters to their legislators, uh, by visiting them and helping them understand why it was so critical that this would happen, never ever use therapeutic pharmaceuticals. So the, I believe it's the unique thing about our profession that, 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 that we have stuck together probably better than any other profession has because we had to, because we were not going to make progress with 10% of the members supporting going into diagnostics or therapeutics. It wasn't going to happen. It had to be 70 80% jumping in there, and they did. You know, and, and I think it goes back even to those graduates that only went graduated from Monroe College or Chicago College of Optometry or the other small colleges around the country in the late, right after post-war was when it started, post-World War II, with thousands of thousand students in their classes graduating in six months. Those doctors were the ones that changed this profession for history. They were the ones who decided we should be wearing, like, the, the dress of MDs. If we're, if we're to be called doctors, we should live in our communities like doctors live in our communities. We should become involved in community activities. And uh, we should dress like, look like, act like, join the country club even. Wow, I mean, those types of things. But even though it seems silly and maybe even trite to us now in this era, that's what moved this profession into the 70s where we could do the legal, the legislative things that we did. It wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for those great doctors that were the post-World War II docs. You know, I'll forever salute those guys. Yeah. And, and none of this gets done without organized optometry. You already hinted to your time at the Wisconsin Optometric Association. You were an AOA volunteer. You were going to do leadership activity uh, because that's just how you were. But what drove you and those that volunteered to do it? Because not everyone wants to, and that's fine. Some participate in other ways, mm -hmm. supporting financially. But what drove you in particular to volunteer? Well, I'm a social animal. Um, no question about that. <clears throat> and uh, I wanted to meet optometrists before I became an optometrist. So I knew a lot of people before I was, a lot of doctors before I was actually a graduate and in practice. And they sought me out. Um, I got buttonholed. <laughs> um, and my first activity on behalf of the Wisconsin Optometric Association, well, actually for optometry was I was, my fellowship at, at ICO was to be um, editor of the alumni uh, journal. It actually was a, Journal of the Alumni Association with typesetting and the whole nine yards. Um, that was my fellowship. So, I mean, that was a gift right there. Um, it paid my tuition for four years at ICO, which pretty amazing. And even then, it wasn't anywhere near as much as it is now. But it was, it was quite a gift. Um, it involved a trip to Chicago for the first time and being interviewed by the president and the dean and all that kind of stuff. But as far as the association is concerned, I think we attended two two annual meetings of the association before we graduated. There was a cadre of five or six of us from Wisconsin who um, who attended those conventions. So people knew us. So when we showed up showed up as members, they had work for us already. And uh, very early in my career as an optometrist, um, 
a very good friend of mine, uh, Dale Tatro, drove into my driveway one day when we lived in Waiwiga, and literally he had a big Pontiac, you know, so this was in the early 70s. And I always joked that the back bumper on his Bonneville was dragging as it came into my driveway. And uh, he just asked if, you know, he wanted to come over and talk. Well, he opened up his trunk, and all the data and back issues of the Journal of the Wisconsin Optometric Association were in his trunk. So he asked me to help him carry <laughs> carry this all into my house. Then I became editor of the Journal of the Wisconsin Optometric Association. I think I had already been... Uh, president of the um, of the local society that I was a member of and that happened the second year and again I was buttonholed somebody came up and said you know so-and-so is retiring as president and we think you'd make a good one well if somebody tells me I'd make a good one that's enough evidence for me and the, <laughs> I'll take that and the young doctors <laughs> today that get buttonholed uh, should mm. accept it, I think. I think they should embrace the idea oh. of, yes, it's another thing, but the profession needs them, don't they? Oh, definitely, definitely. And I've been so impressed. Um, maybe the last 10 years or so, more than ever, maybe it's because it's a surprise to me that the the young people in the general society don't seem to be real involved in Lions Clubs and Chambers of Commerce and stuff as much as we were when, when we started our practices. But boy, we've sure got a good cadre of volunteers, and not just in the Wisconsin Optometric Association, but when I travel, did travel nationally, I saw the same thing, that people were jumping in. And phenomenal people, men and women both, uh, serving the associations. But the one thing I think about with legislative activities in particular, and also membership in the state association, is that even if you don't have the time or you don't feel as though you have whatever talent it might have taken. I mean, forget it, forget any talent. But the, the willingness to do that, if you don't feel that you that you'd be comfortable doing that type of thing, please continue your membership. Because the leadership is worthless without membership. And membership is, of course, worthless without leadership. But with no members, there's no association. And the idea that that membership in the state association and the American Optometric Association is voluntary. Of course it is. It's of your own choice that you make that choice. But the association, the profession, would not be where it is today in 2020 if it was not for state associations and the American Optometric Association. There's no way this could have happened. So legislatively, when you think about it, oh, you know, I barely know my state legislator. I don't know the senator very well. I don't know my federal re uh, representatives. That's all right. I mean, you should get to know them. But if you can't, if you don't feel comfortable doing that, remember that other people have gotten to know them. Other people know how to do the legislative activities. And what they then need is your money. You know, you have to contribute. You have to support, even if, of course, those of us that have done a lot of legislative work naturally support the effort financially as well. But if you can't do it, if you really don't feel comfortable doing, doing that, then please remember to support it, AOA and WA or whatever your state association is financially. Yeah. You, you brought up a, two have to work together. You brought up an important point. I mean, right now the AOA is working on contact lens prescription legislation. It's going to be something else down mm -hmm. the line. And in a political yep. hotbed, we're in an election year. Uh, the reality is not everyone wants to play in politics. And some people want to play politics, but on the side, optometry success has mm -hmm. come from being across the board and being consistent. Oh. And that's really important, isn't it? 
Oh, definitely, definitely. And I think when you think now, uh, over the last 20, 25 years, oftentimes when optometry is competing in the legislation or in the legislative arena for the legislators' ears, we're competing with multi-million dollar, in some case, multi-billion dollar corporations. You know, so here you have 30,000 members around the country trying to pool their resources to go into the federal legislation. Um, boy, that takes big participation. And always remember, too, that, you know, maybe someone asks you to contribute $100. The person who's asking you to contribute $100, i will guarantee you, has contributed a lot more than 100 bucks. And time and, and money, of course, money, but time as well. And, you, and if you're not interested in doing that or you don't think you're capable of doing it, at least do the dollar side. You know, you brought up the diversity of volunteers. It's so wonderful to see here at WOA the number of consecutive female presidents, uh, all following on the heels of our friend Dr. Dory Carlson as the first AOA president, Dr. Andrea Thaw. Uh, it's just, it's nice to see, and we, we do need to see more expansion of volunteerism from those that are underrepresented minorities in our, our profession. We want to give them leadership opportunities to expand. Your class of 71 had some interesting folks. I don't want to leave anybody out, but the Dave Hansons of the world, Brad Williams, and of course, our friend, uh, the late Vic Connors, who was my practice partner. Right. Uh, Vic was a consummate volunteer. He, uh, he, any good Vic Connors stories for you to share? Oh, not that I could. <laughs> um, but Vic was, uh, Vic was an example in some ways of a consummate volunteer. Um, he, he was, I'm sure you found in, in your practice, your joint practice with Vic, that sometimes his volunteer activities maybe overrode some things that could have been happening in the practice. Um, but absolutely devoted to this profession. And it was that kind of people, this, this kind of people, uh, that many of them are still working in the association that's obviously around the country. Uh, but no, I wouldn't dare share any Vic stories. You know, what's interesting about Vic is that as soon as the AOA work looked like it was going to come to its end, he stepped up to help the beginnings of optometry given sight <sighs> and became the national <sighs> leader there and then readily joined International. the World Council Optometry President. He yeah. would come back on, mm -hmm. a, on a Monday morning as we're getting ready for patients and stand in the doorway. And I knew I was trapped when the doorway was blocked. And he would start to tell me mm -hmm. about the needs of the people of Nigeria. And Scott, you can't believe that there's only one optometrist per million Nigerians. What are we going to do about that? Mm -hmm. And I think it's those kind of folks. And I put you in that group of people that we should all learn from, that you can continue to yeah. give every day. And that's mm -hmm. the beauty of what Vic yeah. did for all of us. Oh, yeah. And I, I will tell you one Vic Connor story, because when he, he graduated from Waniwak High School, which is similar to Wild Rose High School, which I graduated from, a relatively really small town. And his English wasn't just the best. It was Wanawakian. <laughs> uh, yeah. He was and Wisconsinite English. And uh, I remember when he was elected president of the World Council of Optometry, and I'm thinking, oh, I wish I could help him write his speeches. Because, but on the other hand, um, his devotion and his genuineness would have overridden anybody's judgment or even probably noticing his use of English. I mean, that's how big he was. He was a phenomenal human being. 
not perfect. No, and, and, and phenomenal. He embraced those imperfections, and that's what everyone loved about him. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. now, now more back to you. You not only volunteered, but then your 20 years in clinical practice, or nearly 20 years, concluded because you decided. I think I'm going to become the executive director of the state association. <laughs> there are a few ODs yeah. that have done that. And uh, I know a few of them and every one of them and you have given their entire self to the profession. When you do that, what was it like working as an employee of the association? <laughs> uh, two things happened after we've passed our therapeutic legislation. And it was, it was to, uh, the administrative, that was in 89, the administrative rules would be written in 1990. And a group of us that had been real active in passing diagnostic and therapeutic legislation learned that our executive director, who had worked us through the, all the legislative side of it, the administrative rules would come during the next year, announced in, that he was going to retire, or not retire, quit, in October of 89. So it was October of 89 and all of the legislative activity for legis for the administrative rules would start January of 90. And a group of us got together and said, boy, it's too bad one of us who's been so involved couldn't do this. So between October 16th, I believe, of 89, January 1st of 1990, um, I applied for the job and was hired to be executive director of executive vice president of the WA. Um, so I had to, and I, and first thing they said when they said that they would hire me is that I would have to divide, to divest myself of my practice. You know, hinky dinky little practice and hinky dinky little town in central Wisconsin, and I had two months to sell my practice. And I was fortunate to find a person um, to do that, to buy it, and um, and he's still in practice 30 years later. And I think I I considered, actually, one of the questions that came up was. Um, as a as a owner of a private practice, how do you consider yourself to be capable of running the whole optometric association? Well, my gross income in the association was um, higher than the association. The gross income of the association was less than my gross, not by much, <laughs> in my private practice. And I had more employees in my private practice than I would have in the association. And I'd been in practice 19, almost 20 years. And I just told him, I said, I think I'm capable as an administrator of a private practice of optometry. I believe I can also learn to do that for the association. And uh, I think the fact that I'd been involved so much in the legislative side uh, convinced the, the board of directors that it would be okay to hire me. And I think it worked out all right. It sure did work out all right. <clears throat> so. Um, shifting a little bit to your work experience, uh, as you went on through your career, you did other things, and you certainly became one of the preeminent experts on optometric documentation, coding, and billing. And on top of that, to my knowledge, you're the only optometrist who was ever presented as a feature inside of an EHR when we named a section of help the Ask Dr. Brownlow section inside of our software for a few years. Yeah, That's right. what it was called, mm -hmm. and uh, it was mm -hmm. it was a important selling point. And, and of course, mm -hmm. your goal the whole time has been to help optometrists understand the nuances and importances of documentation. And You've kind of, from time to time, confided in me that after decades of trying to educate them, you're not sure how much of it got through, but I think a lot did. What do doctors still need to understand that you wish they would have listened to 30 years ago? 
specifically about documentation? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, well, you you and I were involved in education before there were before there were any electronic medical records. Uh, so we go back a long way in that subject. But my my plea to doctors of optometry and staff for the last 30 years has been to concentrate on the reason for visit. I mean, it's the documentation guidelines and more importantly, the care that you provide to a patient is related to directly to the needs of that patient that day. Um, I saw way too many records that were constructed, more, more importantly, I saw records that represented encounters that were obviously created and set up with almost no respect to what the patient's needs were that day. The reason for visit had nothing at all to do with what they did in the, in the process of the visit. And I think part of it goes back to our history, the 21 point eye examination, mm -hmm. where when I was educated, uh, we had a 21 point examination and you did all those tests on every patient irrespective, they could be monocular and you'd be doing binocular tests or something like that. I mean, we really didn't, but it was almost that bad. And instead of concentrating very carefully on the case history, starting out with saying, what brought you here today? Maybe it's been exactly two years since our previous exam. That doesn't mean they're just in here for a routine exam. And I think our, our history, our heritage, misleads us on how our examination should be structured. And, and I, I worked for all the last 15, 20 years of my career to help people concentrate on the reason for visit and understand that the reason for visit can change during the course of the visit. So that um, I think that's the I think that's the main point I would try to drive home. But you even worked with payers. I mean, there was time where you spent flying to other coasts of the United States from Wisconsin to work with these payers of managed vision care plans, which have helped the profession in some ways and handcuffed it in some ways to help them understand mm -hmm. that they need to embrace right. the standards and let the doctor be the doctor because we've kind of fit the profession in, into a sentence. 92014, is it an, a routine eye exam or a comprehensive ophthalmologic service? You and I could do another hour podcast on that. Mm -hmm. Still today in the year 2020. No, we won't. We'll save. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, and the reason is that there has been an interpretation of a profession that wants to be medical to fit into sort of these routine guidelines because there's certain payers that put patients through what you'd call an annual or a routine. And and for you to drive it about the reason for visit is to actually listen to why the patient's there. And sometimes it's, well, you told me to come back, you sent me the Snoopy postcard. But more often than not, mm -hmm. there's a real reason the patient is there. It's something that they want to be addressed. Right. And so I wanna go deeper on that. When the patient has mm -hmm. both a doctor reason for visit, like you need to come back in two years or six months, and their own needs, how does a doctor sort through that? How does the staff who's taking the history sort through that? Well, I think the main thing is to to not pay a whole lot of attention to the first thing that's written on the chart or or the first person or the first thing that the patient tells the staff or the doctor why they're there. Because I think as healthcare providers, we know oftentimes the most serious issues are the ones that they don't want to be talked about. You know, the, the, the patient is not, is oftentimes if they're worried about their eye condition, they don't want to tell you about it. So say a person does come in um, and what, what's recorded on the chart is uh, two years last eye exam, no problems. Not that I've ever seen that on a chart. <laughs> um, but then the interview process starts with staff probably 
and maybe the patient opens up a little bit and says, you know, um, I can see all right, but it's I can't see the same way all the time. Sometimes I see better than other times, or my, I have a little eye pain, but don't worry about it. You don't have to tell the doctor. Um, or maybe it's even the staff has done the entire case history, pillar to post, and has filled up four pages on the computer, and uh, 72 points, and uh, they've done all that, and then the doctor sits with the patient and just kind of goes over things and says, well, it looks like you're just here for your regular two-year eye examination, but you did mention that your vision's blurry sometime. Tell me more about that. Well, then the patient starts to open up, and then the doctor's scratching her head, thinking, hmm, the reason for visit says routine, two years, no eye exam. What I'm hearing now is overriding that. So what do I do? Reappoint the patient? Don't reappoint the patient. You may lose them to follow up. You know, so if if it's your in your best um, in your best judgment to go forward and dig deeper, then you just change the reason for visit. And if if a question was ever asked, you would say, "I remember this one." You know, the patient started explaining things that were far more serious than routine eye examination, and I changed what I did from that point forward. That's a medical visit, probably, in the case that we're talking about, rather than a non-vision or non-medical visit. And then we get into these nuances, right? There's vision plans that pay for a person to show up, which is why they're there, or... Um... You know, the doctor is trying to fit a Medicaid patient into a medical exam when the patient may have nothing medical. Um, how do you advise doctors to think about how the payer of a potential visit factors into how they document the visit? Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, I, I think we're, I mean, I'm being really frank. Please. I, I think we as a profession are very fortunate that we haven't had uh, a lot of really serious audits uh, with respect to documentation um, because if we keep the patient's best interest at heart, which is exactly what we're supposed to be doing, uh, we don't have any problems uh, because we can substantiate it. Um, I, I've defended doctors in situations where I had to bite my tongue through the entire defense because if I would have answered the questions that the lawyers asked of me fully, rather than just directly, answering only the question that they ask, which is how we're taught to deal with attorneys, um, the doctor would not have come out very well. Um, I actually remember after one situation, the doctor was just so excited in the hallway after all the drama was theoretically over, and just so grateful to me for having him Get, having gotten him off hook, off the hook. And I remember grabbing him by the shoulders and saying, this is only step number one. Because if you go back to your office and continue doing what we just talked about and tried to cover over what you were doing, um, I'm not going to defend you again. You know, so if we keep the patient's best interest at heart, which would not even have to be said, and if we do only what the patient needs and what the doctor needs to serve the needs of the patient best, and if we keep a good record of that, and then if we choose the codes based on the content of the record, there's nothing to worry about. The, audit can come in, the auditor can come in and you'll stand over their shoulder shaking, obviously, because that's what we do, but you'll be proud that your record will sustain you, 
in an audit. Yeah, that's great. The, the advent of electronic health records, I mean, you were behind the development or the people who d helped develop a, a couple or three different electronic health record systems. And so that all went back to your want for good documentation. Getting out of the documentation asks I've had of you here, electronic health records for you as a patient, do you feel like they've helped the care your doctors have given you or made it more difficult for the doctors that give care to you? I, I think what I notice as a patient is it's probably expedited matters. Um, the examination goes more smoothly. Um, a lot of the data is entered automatically, so it doesn't have to be physically handwritten in or typed as handwritten as it used to be. Um, I, and, and plus, um, there are reminders in there in good electronic medical records uh, that maybe you did something and didn't record it, that type of thing before you move on. Uh, all of those things are essentially impossible unless you have a fantastic staff, um, as many of us were fortunate to have. Um, so uh, yeah, there's there's no question electronic medical records have been good. The downside would be that if you just fill in whatever blank lights up, you know, if it doesn't come back to the needs of the patient and your needs as a provider that day, uh, that's that's a slippery slope. And I, I've been concerned about that right from the beginning. But fortunately, the developers of the best electronic medical records around the country have been cognizant of that and careful about that as well. Yeah. But it all comes back to doctors and staff. Yeah. So you've described yourself as a, a person who's outgoing and, and we all like interaction. And obviously the scope of, um, or the scale of optometric meetings has really changed of late. And going forward, they'll probably be a little different. Um, any thoughts about the change that could be coming down the line to the profession with people not maybe as willing to get together in person? What's the magic that happens when doctors get together and, and talk through things oh. the way you've seen it in your career? All right. Yeah, I think I think virtual education has a place. I think it's very important and in, uh, in existence. I mean, it really is an important thing. But getting together with colleagues, especially for a profession where we're not working in hospitals for the most part, we're not in big multidisciplinary clinics, uh, many doctors are still single doctor practices, um, that camaraderie with other healthcare professionals, in our case, for the most part, that would be doctors of optometry, but that camaraderie is absolutely priceless. I mean, you'll hear things in the hallway outside that you're not going to hear on a Zoom, um, that you're not going to hear in, in remote education of any kind. Um, the con those conversations oftentimes will change a, something significant about the way you practice. Um, get an idea of, of a piece of equipment you've been thinking about purchasing and maybe even have put a down payment on and then find out, don't do that, that's the worst thing. You know, it's not gonna help you one bit <laughs> or whatever it might be. Face-to-face, um, -face, um, especially for this profession. I mean, this profession grew on relationships. I mean, optometry is what it is today because of the relationships that have been built over the last 40 years. There, there's no question about that. And that you can't do that virtually, at least not as well. So, so yeah. I. I so keep attending the, the local meetings, then the state meetings, and the national meeting whenever you get a chance. Um, 
and obviously get your virtual education tool. There's nothing wrong with that. So many groups have been predicated on the relationships, the peer-to-peer, -peer. and obviously that foundation was built on optometric associations, and it's blossomed since then. But that's really important. Um, there is no doubt about it, right? Say it on tape. You were, you have been the most influential optometrist in my life. Who influenced you? Oh. That would be a long list. That that would be a long list. I was just thinking about uh, Al Amir this morning. <clears throat> and uh, I had a chat with him about a year ago. He, he was instrumental in diagnostic legislation in the late 70s in the state of Wisconsin. Um, he was also one that... Um, Establish the um, the demeanor of a professional optometrist. Set an example for the rest of us that came in. Um, I mean, that's and he represents Dale Tatro. He represents Jack Fitzgerald. I mean, he, he represents tons of Wisconsin optometrists who influenced me. Roger Wilson. I mean, it's it's, it's hard to make a list um, without leaving somebody out. I know. Oh yeah, yeah, and I and whoever it is knows I'm leaving them out, and I don't mean to. Um, on the AOA level, uh, just all the wonderful people I worked with, Ray Malmer and Communication Center when I was Communication Center uh, chair, um, just just absolutely wonderful people. Not always optometrists. Ray was not an optometrist, you know. But in this profession, we depend upon the lay people. Uh, to, to carry the the business side of all our associations. In most cases, they're lay people who, and I think it's not an accident, commit themselves to our profession way beyond what they should be doing for whatever wage they're, they're uh, earning. Uh, they, they become like surrogate optometrists almost, uh, political advocates for us. I mean, it's just, and, and, and societal advocates for us. It's just amazing. This profession is a very profession is a very personal profession, and it and it's shown in our staff people. They become like members of our association. Um, so I mean, but I there are just I could think of ten or fifteen before before 1979 who influenced me. I can think of some uh, Bud Shannon, past president of the of the AOA, you know, back in 1970, I think. Who influenced me for five or six years? Who influ influenced me before I even was in optometry college? Um, Jack Breckner, my my first optometrist. Um, you know, I watched what he did, and I thought that's kind of cool. Yeah. You know, that's kind of nice what he does, and he doesn't really have to shed very much blood. <laughs> you know, so maybe that'd be a nice profession right. for me. Um, and I didn't decide that until I was a sophomore in college. Uh, but just many, many people. And then Sherry by my side all yeah. the time. No matter what stupid idea. I'm going to sell my practice, and, and they tell me I have to live in Madison. But you and the kids are going to stay in Waiwiga. You know, how do you put that on a right. scale? Well, I mean, it's not. A, That's just a it, tiny. It's the, it's the family, which you're about. It's these people that are mentors. But you made a good point along the way there that it's also the people that work alongside us that maybe aren't our mentors, but are our heroes because they joined the journey and they weren't optometrists. 
Um, I mean, goodness, uh, our office staff that joined us along the way, um, you know, uh, the people who joined us in different business endeavors, some were optometrists, some weren't. Um, I, you know, I personally can right. speak to people like Tracy Stinas and Jim Schneider and Paul Harchie, three people, you know, who right off the top of my head, I think these are sure they're mentors to me because they took optometry as their own. Um, and I just think that's right. really unique about optometry. Right, right. And I, th I think when, when you ask me about people who've influ influenced me too, I, I have to think back to my family, my, my dad, my yeah. mother. <clears throat> that helped me understand um, the importance of honoring the other person that you're dealing with, even if you, you don't know for sure that that person yet deserves being honored, and sometimes they don't, but it still doesn't hurt to honor them. Um, treat people as you would wish to be treated. I mean, just those simple rules, um, and, and some, some religious rules that come in there as well, you know, that, um, that have influenced me from the time I was six years old. So, so let's shift gears to your book. You are an author. Hmm. Uh, you're getting close to publish. Tell everybody about your book. Oh, thank you. Um, the book is called Counting on the Moon, and uh, it's set in 1921 in rural Wisconsin, actually just outside a little town called Wild Rose, Wisconsin, which happens to be the town I grew up in. Um, my dad and his brother were orphaned when they were 12, dad was 12 and, and my uncle was 14 going on 15, lost both parents in the two years prior to the, uh, lost their mother two years prior to losing their dad to typhus and a, an ap a appendic or appendicitis in 1921. <clears throat> um, and I always wondered what it was like for dad to grow up living in rural, on a farm in rural Wisconsin in, in 1921 at the age of 12 with no parents. And uh, they were raised by an uncle and an aunt and another uncle part-time. And I thought that would be interesting if I could get my dad to tell me what it was like. Well, dad always wanted me to talk about me. He always wanted me to talk about my life. He wanted me to make my own life. He didn't want me to try to model his life. I mean, he was, he was very insistent about that. So I never learned much from him. But as, as anybody who knows me knows, I'm a person of words. Um, I'm a person of a lot of words. And uh, so I thought I would just start a book, and I actually started it in 1984. And it would be set in the house my dad grew up in, in the rural Wild Rose. Um, and the whole thing takes place in about a six-mile radius. Um, it would involve people who have the same names as my dad and my uncle, although with different last names. Um, and, and there would be another orphan in the story that would come in pretty early in the story that my dad and my uncle would help uh, find her way. Um, and she's also 12 years old. And from that, um, I just typed as fast as I could to keep up with what the kids had to tell me. Uh, it was a a, just a wonderful adventure in fiction um, that I probably never would have believed myself capable of. I mean, I can I can enlarge on the truth, uh, but pure fiction was never <laughs> never totally my game. Uh, and it, I finished it uh, about six months ago and got an editor. Uh, it'll be published on Amazon, and, and she calls it a Christmas book because it should be out in November, uh, probably late November. And uh, 
and it's pretty exciting. It's exciting. And for me, um, and, and of course, I've been talking about this book in hallways at optometric meetings all around the country because people heard that I was writing 30 a book. years. And then somebody would stop. <laughs> I know somebody would stop me in the hall and say, how's your book coming? And uh, I would say, well, I haven't written them for a couple of years. And then I would they would ask me to remind them what it was about. And I would start reminding them what the book was about. And then there would be about six or eight people standing around. So there are a lot of a lot of optometrists out there, some of them still alive, um, who are who are going to be uh, hopefully eager to hear that it's. Finished. I'm shameless about the name. What is it again? Counting, Counting on, the on the moon. And Counting on the Moon is actually um, Carl, the, the the main uh, character in the book, wrote a story about Maddie, who's the little girl that they're helping. To, and the story kind of demonstrates Maddie's special personality. And Carl titled that story Counting on the Moon. So then when I wanted to come up with a title for the book, I named it after Carl's story, the imaginary character in That's the book. Awesome. So, well, I hope that everyone does buy a copy for the holidays and distribute yeah. it to their family. That's yeah. uh, great. No. Well, uh, the reality is that, um, you know, we probably should wind down a bit. I'm wondering if you got a last bit of wisdom that you've always wanted to share with optometrists in the profession. Uh, give us give us your best. Um, I'm, this is going to be really short, very uncharacteristic of me. But um, I taught spokesperson training uh, a number of years ago to, for optometrists. Uh, first in the Wisconsin Optometric Association, and I think we did an extension of that for the North Central States Optometric Council of five states that grew to be seven back in the 70s and 80s, for the leadership of the association to learn how to deal with uh, being put on the spot by an interview, whether it be a television or a radio interview or whatever it would be. And uh, I, had, I had taken a class from a person at Northwestern University put on by the uh, Association of uh, Wisconsin Association of, of Execs. And uh, I thought this optometrist would benefit from this as well. So I taught that course. And the one thing I learned in that course that I've never forgotten, and Sherry actually reminded me this morning that I hadn't forgotten it yet, is concept over self. So when you go to visit a legislator, when you're talking to a patient, um, when you're dealing with personal issues, uh, whatever it is in your life, you, you have to forget that your shirt's unbuttoned or that your tie is crooked, um, that, that maybe you, you should not have worn this shirt because it clashes with something else, um, that, that maybe you're kind of hoarse today and your voice doesn't sound as good as it should, your hair isn't combed. If, if you can concentrate on what you're trying to accomplish and forget about yourself, you're able to accomplish a lot more than you can if you're concentrating on yourself. And, and I think it works in legislation, it works in, in dealing with patients, whatever it is. If you can focus in on that with yourself not being in the mirror any place and just focus on that, it's going to serve you well. Well, you've tried to do that in your career, not focus on yourself. And I'm thrilled to have been able to work with you today to tell your story. You've allowed me to be an emotional person in my life. <clears throat> and uh, my friendship is... Yeah beyond belief with you. Yeah. Thanks for letting me tell your yeah. story. Yeah, we, we call that our sinus That's condition. Right. That's right.
<laughs> well, Chuck Barlow, <laughs> thank you very much. Anybody's one page document in an entire book. Um, he's a man of few words, as you can tell. And uh, Chuck, just a great pleasure to have you here today. Oh, thank you very much, Scott. And my for pleasure. the audience, thanks for attending. As always, grateful for you to allow me to tell these stories. Until my next sandbox story, be great at all you do.